Have you ever looked at Velázquez's Las Meninas? It's an intriguing court painting that's elicited a lot of art historical research over the years. It's one of those paintings that's a bit mysterious because it's so different from typical portraits of the era. This is Spain in 1656, and the artist has incorporated himself into the painting. So it's a painting of the artist painting the royal couple. Velázquez is at the center of the canvas, and King Philip IV and Marianne of Austria are reflected in a mirror. At the center of the painting, we see the Infanta Margarita and her maids. There are other figures in the painting, but I want to draw your attention to the two figures on the right, the so-called court dwarfs, who have been identified as Mari Barbola and Nicolasito Pertusato. Unboxing the Canon takes a closer look at the history of Western art. We might be seduced by the pretty packaging, such as soft brushstrokes, brilliant colors, grand gestures, expert carving, even traditional iconography. But what happens when we take a deeper look? When we open the packaging and see what might have been invisible, or what is a cultural blind spot? Join me, Professor Linda Steer, and co-host Madeline Collins for a take on art history that connects the past to the present, critiques the canon, and reveals what might not be immediately apparent in Western art and its institutions. I'm Linda Steer, and I'm here with co-host Madeline Collins. We've been talking about representations of disability in art. Madeline, have any of your art history courses covered disability as a topic? It's actually very rare for the topic to crop up in class, and you don't even notice that until someone mentions the absence. It might be mentioned in brief, but it's never the focus. Yeah, that's not surprising, actually. I'm realizing that I rarely talk about the history of differently abled bodies in Western art in my classes, even though I've experienced disability myself. However, there is a growing body of research that connects the field of disability studies to the field of art history. For instance, there are two relatively new academic anthologies that combine disability studies scholarship with scholarship on contemporary art and art history. There's even a gallery in Toronto that is dedicated to showing the work of artists with disabilities. Tangled Art Plus Disability provides resources and advocacy for people with disabilities in all areas of the arts. And they take an intersectional approach, which is pretty cool. In this episode, we will think about why disability might be absent from the history of Western art and how we might rectify that. We'll also talk about what we've been missing and how some contemporary artists are representing disability in powerful ways. But first, let's return to Diego Velázquez's Las Meninas. Working as the court painter for King Philip IV, Velázquez was a successful painter in the 17th century, also known as the Golden Age of Spanish painting. He painted many portraits of royalty and those who lived and worked at the court, including some of the more than 100 people with restricted growth. 
Why were there so many little people in Philip's court? One scholar notes that while, quote, their main function was to be decorative, their main task was to amuse, end quote, they also performed other duties in court, such as administrative duties, childcare, and chaperoning. However, the Prado Museum notes that visible difference attracted the curiosity of the king. So the roles of people with visible disabilities in early modern courts were complex. In Las Meninas, Velázquez paints Marie Barbala with as much dignity as the other women in the painting who all stand in their finery and look out of the canvas at us. Scholars have noted, however, that artists portraying court figures in Velázquez's time purposely juxtaposed individuals to demonstrate physical and social difference. While it may not seem obvious to us now, we are looking at a depiction of hierarchy that not only shows the superiority of the royal family by birthright, but also celebrates their able bodies. Velázquez's painting is indeed fascinating, as are other historical paintings of differently abled people. To understand some of these works, it's useful to think about the work of contemporary artist, writer, and curator, Riva Lehrer. Lehrer has written about some of the issues with portrayals of visibly disabled people in historical work and explains how she approaches her own practice. Reacting to her college education, where people with disabilities were absent in the painting she studied in art history, and to a painting instructor who suggested that she should focus on universal bodies rather than disabled bodies in her work, Lara writes, and I'm quoting her here, Deep in the history of portraiture lies a paradox. Disability forms the raison d'etre of portraiture, yet it is nearly impossible to create a portrait of a disabled subject. The history of portraiture forms the basis of Western concepts of power, beauty, affluence, dignity, and sexuality, all concepts that rest on ideal bodies and reject impairment. Disability shows up as a negative space, a silhouette cut from thin black paper. For Lehrer, images of disabled bodies in Western art and visual culture can be divided into two categories, humanizing works and medicalized depictions. Medicalized depictions tend to represent disabled bodies in pathologizing and dehumanizing ways for the purposes of diagnosis or spectacle. For example, she notes that in painting of a man with a disability from the mid-16th century, the painted figure of a prone naked man is presented under a sheet of paper that you have to lift to see the image. Originally in a private collection, the painting now resides in Vienna's Kunsthistorisches Museum. Ableism is implicit in many of the examples Lehrer discusses, even those she describes as positive, such as Antonis More's Pejeron, the gesture of the Count of Benevente and the Grand Duke of Alba from 1559-61, which, quote, possesses a dignified gravity uncommon in depictions of impairment, end quote. So why is ableism implicit? because depictions of disabled bodies are made in reference to the ideal able body. While the proportions of the ideal body change over time and place, ideal bodies are linked to concepts of perfection, wholeness, and even godliness. 
These concepts of perfection or wholeness are so pervasive that even though we see them all the time in visual culture, we rarely question them. This corresponds with the ideology of ability, a term used by disability studies scholar Tobin Siebers. For Siebers, ability and able-bodiedness are the norms against which disabled bodies are judged. Abled bodies are seen as having value, while those with less ability become less than human. This internalized cultural notion contributes to the practice of eugenics and other ableist beliefs. In contrast, we see the work of Lair reflecting the social model of disability, which understands that humans themselves are not disabled, but rather are disabled by the inaccessibility and the perceptions of the society around us. Much of Lehrer's work centers on collaboration with other artists with disabilities. For instance, she interviewed her subjects about their lives and their thoughts on disability for her first series of paintings, Circle Stories. Lehrer was mindful of not reproducing the medicalized, dehumanizing gaze, which she calls, quote, toxic staring, unquote, that has affected people with disabilities their whole lives. And we've talked about the power of the gaze in previous episodes of this podcast. Who's looking at whom? Who has the power in that dynamic? Who is allowed to look and who isn't? Lehrer aims to counter these established principles of looking, and the result is a series of portraits that focus on beauty rather than pain. She writes, quote, I wanted to make a space without pain, to show disabled people as powerful, gorgeous, sexual, even majestic. Yes, and Lara writes that the Circle Stories portraits verge on hagiography. In a way, these portraits counter stigma. Lara also notes that even those who look normal don't think of themselves as normal. I thought this point was interesting. It reminds me how harmful notions of the ideal body can be. As I said earlier, the specific proportions of the ideal body change through the history of art, but there's always an ideal body. And very, very few of us have that body. We focused a lot on depictions of bodies, which makes sense because a lot of historical art focuses on the body. But what about other kinds of experiences that might be framed as disability? And how does disability intersect with other forms of socially and culturally constructed difference? Madeline is going to introduce us to the work of Persimmon Blackbridge, an artist she discovered in her research for this episode. A Canadian sculptor, writer, curator, and performer, Blackbridge's work touches on disability, institutionalization, censorship, queer identity, and generational alcoholism. I was really interested in Blackbridge's work because she offers a contemporary view of the disabled body, particularly the disabled female body, in a way that challenges what we think defines us and what doesn't. Blackbridge identifies as a lesbian as well as disabled, and these two identities inform her work. In an interview with E! Magazine, she talks about how having a learning disability and a psychiatric history was something that she hid for a long time out of fear of the way she would be perceived. In 1984, Blackbridge worked with Sheila Gilhooley, a woman who had been incarcerated in the 60s for being a lesbian. Still Sane, their collaborative exhibition and book, provided both sculptural and written accounts of Gilhooley's experience while in the hospital. Blackbridge created 27 life-size clay body casts 
and Gilhooly wrote on them. She described her experiences of coming out, being institutionalized by her therapist for hysteria, and her torturous, disturbing experiences inside the hospital. The exhibition amplified the disabled and queer experience in a world that doesn't recognize either as normal or human, and showed strength in the face of that. Blackbridge worked in sculpture again for her 2018 exhibition, Constructed Identities, at the Tangled Arts Gallery, the gallery that Linda mentioned at the beginning of this episode. The exhibition consists of several hand-carved sculptures of human bodies mounted onto the walls. The bodies are fragmented. For some, the limbs have been replaced with wings, while others are split straight down the middle or have been created from a mismatched array of puppet parts, mechanical elements, pieces of Barbie dolls, or animal bones. For Blackbridge, the sculptures are layered with meaning, whether it is the experience of disability, grief or hardship, sexuality, these parts of us are inextricable from our identities. In fact, these are the things that shape us. An interviewer writes that Blackbridge, quote, finds meaning in making art that lessens the sense of isolation and shame just by talking about her disability in public, end quote. Rather than highlighting disability as a glaring symbol of a person's difference, as systemic ableism tries to tell us, Blackbridge reminds us that it has always been a part of who we are, as normal and as integral as any other part of us. Through all these works, Blackbridge makes the invisible visible, creating a visual representation of our very complex identities. I like Blackbridge's approach to the experience of disability and to representing that experience in art. It's interesting that, like Lehrer, she takes a collaborative approach to some of her work. Collaboration can certainly build community, which is great, but it is also political, I think, in the sense that it challenges the norms of the institutions of art. How? Well, there's this idea of genius and individuality and vision that runs through the history of art. So, for instance, by working collaboratively and not signing their work, early 20th century avant-garde art movements, such as Surrealism or Dada, challenge this idea that modern art is to be understood only as the expression of a creative personality. I want to think about this cultural construction of the genius artist for a moment, because there are connections to ideas about artists with disabilities. Quite a long time ago, art historian Griselda Pollock wrote about the artist genius myth in relation to Vincent van Gogh. Everyone's favorite, right? Well, she stated that Van Gogh is the modern archetype of the so-called tortured genius, and that people seek to understand his painting by trying to understand his illness. And I think she's right. Most popular cultural references to Van Gogh's work focus on his ear and his suicide. There's a kind of slippage where we tend to equate the artist's life with his work, and there's an assumption that illness or suffering is what makes his work so great. I think something similar happens with Mexican artist Frida Kahlo. There's so much focus on the accident she lived through and the pain she endured. Certainly, some of her work was biographical. And as a person who's lived through multiple back surgeries and chronic pain, her painting The Broken Column, for instance, really speaks to me. But as with Van Gogh, there's an entire industry around romanticizing the artist's pain. And that's a problem. These ideas about pain and creativity are patronizing to artists like Van Gogh and Callow, who were so much more than their biographies. 
Both were hardworking, creative, intellectual artists whose work is not a simple expression of their difficult experiences. A new book by Emily Rapp Black called Frida Kahlo and My Left Leg promises to explore some of these ideas. We have just a couple minutes left in this episode, but I wanted to mention accessibility in curatorial practice. Eliza Chandler is the artistic director at Tangled Arts Gallery, and she's talked about the increasing interest in accessibility in museums, although there's still a long way to go. She offers a multitude of ways curators can actively integrate accessibility into their curatorial practice, such as hanging works lower, with audio descriptions and braille labels accompanying every piece, or creating secondary sculptures that can be touched by viewers who cannot see them, and special viewings for those who can't necessarily sit still, like people with autism or Tourette's. It's also important to consider accessibility for artists with disabilities, since disabled creators face a completely different set of social, financial, and creative obstacles in the art world. As Chandler notes, we need to begin adjusting our culture to people's needs rather than forcing them to fit into what already exists. Thanks, Madeline. We've covered a lot in this episode. And listeners, I hope you'll take a look at our episode notes, where you can find links to images of some of the works of art we've talked about, along with some of the resources we consulted for this episode. There's a lot more we could say about this topic. But for now, that's a wrap. See you next time. Season 2 of Unboxing the Canon is hosted and produced by Professor Linda Steer. Our sound designer and contributing researcher is Madeline Collins, who is also reading these credits. If you like Unboxing the Canon, please subscribe and rate us on any of the main podcast apps. Because this podcast is an OER, it is free to download and use in your own teaching and learning. If you do use it in your class, we would love to know. You can find us on Twitter at Canon Unboxing or Instagram at Unboxing the Canon. You can also write to unboxingthecanon at gmail.com. Financial support for this podcast comes from the Humanities Research Institute and Match of Minds, both at Brock University. Brock University is located on the traditional lands of the Haudenosaunee and Anishinaabe peoples, many of whom continue to live and work here today. We encourage you to learn about the history of the Indigenous people and the treaties and agreements that govern the territory where you live. Our region is covered by the Upper Canada Treaties and is within the land protected by the Dish With One Spoon Wampum Agreement. We acknowledge that our great standard of living is directly related to the resources and friendship of First Nations, Métis, and Inuit peoples. Thank you.